0: Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week is Claude Mandy. Claude is a chief evangelist at Symmetry Systems, makers of DataGuard. DataGuard, is it called?
1: DataGuard is correct, yes.
0: DataGuard, and we'll get into the whole cloud security space. Claude, welcome to the show, a fellow cricket fan out of Australia. How are you?
1: Thanks, Ryan. I'm super excited to be here. I'm glad that we can kind of make this happen. I know we've talked about it a few times, but uh, yeah.
0: you have had a fascinating and interesting career arc, uh, starting out as an auditor. Uh, back in your in your formative years, through a stint as BISO, a stint as a CISO, and then a stint at Gartner as an analyst before making this entire transformation back to the vendor side. I want to start at the beginning though. Uh, your your path here. You started out as an auditor, so you studied accounting. Is that
1: that's accurate? Great. I come from a family of accountants, so. My- you know, my dad, my mum, they all kind of they met studying accounting at university. So my brother became an accountant and you know there was always pressure on to follow in your dad's footsteps. So I studied accounting, was on that career path. And then um, yeah part of that was becoming an auditor, auditing financial statements and financial accounts. So from there it became quickly apparent when I was doing that. I was always interested in you know IT and the computer side. Um, but every audit started to end up being about the financial accounts and the systems that they were using. You know, SOX was big when I was kind of back there. It was new. It was scary. People were kind of going into that. So there was a lot of IT general control testing and aspects.
0: Like SOX that. meaning Sarbanes-Oxley, the like, old uh, uh, compliance yeah. uh, regulation, right? Correct. Uh, it's,
1: it's old, but it's still around. So <laughs> it, it is, it and, is.
0: And then you two, you you, you ended up at, at Commonwealth Bank and that was kind of your entry into IT and security. I believe you did a technology risk and compliance manager then. How did that, like talk me through the transition from auditing and accounting into risk and compliance management and where did the risk management piece kind of click in your brain that, you know what, this is a career path I'm taking uh, for a specific purpose or did it just happen?
1: It kind of just happened, but I think like everything, you kind of follow it and you trust trust your gut. And my gut back then was saying, you know, security is going to be the primary focus of a lot of auditing firms, primary focus of everything. And, you know, I took the opportunities. I grew up in South Africa. so um, And then as part of that move to the Commonwealth Bank, it was a move internationally to, to kind of Australia. So it was always about taking these opportunities. And every kind of move in my career has been about what's the next skill I can add to my kind of toolkit? What, what, what interests me? What excites me in kind of taking that, that kind of path from that? So, you know, part of that was strategic. I thought security, IT risk, technology risk was going to be a big thing. Everything was going digital. And part of it was it interested me and excited me to, to kind of get my, my teeth into that and kind of understand it better.
0: You did a stint also as a business information security officer there. What is a BISO? Like, help me understand what what does what that title mean? And, and and is there any sort of preparation or connection between being a BISO and a CISO that is direct? Is there like a direct correlation there?
1: Yeah. Do, do you want the cheeky answer? Because, um, you know, BISOs are the, the kind of kicking... <laughs> The kind of damper between the security teams and business units that are, are really are the the primary front line of of everything in a business. So within a bank like Commonwealth Bank, it was facing into those different business units. So that's where the business comes from. It right, you focusing on a specific business line, not necessarily into that next evolution of the products they support, but the business line, and you're there to represent security, but you're also there to take in that guidance from the actual business units themselves, what are they doing? So you can build your security strategy specific to that uh, to that business unit because every business unit in a multinational, multi-conglomerate, multi-product line thing like a bank is different. So you have to really kind of understand the business. Um, so part of that is I was well suited for that because I can speak the language of the business, understood what they were doing from my financial and accounting background, you know, money matters. And then you actually have audited some of these businesses, like banks, like insurance companies that are parts of the, these banks in Australia.
0: And we're talking about the mid two thousands, right? So there isn't a cloud sprawl yet, there isn't digital sprawl yet. What, they, can you share a little bit about what the technology landscape looked like at the time? And you know, right around, uh, I don't know how much longer uh, it was before you took on a CISO role to like be a head of security. I believe it was at an insurance company. Uh, talk a little bit about like the stack and what the landscape looked like at the time. Yeah, most
1: at that point, I was actually fortunate. The CIO at Commonwealth Bank uh, was a a very progressive uh, CIO called Michael Hart. And he was probably the first adopter of the cloud in Australia. He was heavily progressive. He was wanting to, to kind of push everyone to to kind of work towards that. So I actually saw the transformation of a bank trying to adopt the cloud for the first time and try to adopt not just the public cloud at that point because we had heavy regulations, but, you know, private cloud, building that that virtualized uh, infrastructure internally and kind of working through that um, and then looking at ways to orchestrate that and automate it. So I kind of, at Commonwealth Bank, I saw that full remit from, you know, heavily on-premise, you know, everyone kind of, would laugh about it, but, you know, we had Outlook web access back then. We still have, most people, organizations still have it, but, you know, that was the most remote working that you got is giving them a web portal to, to do that.
0: Right. Um, but that's in the VPN world of uh, uh, connection We it's not, you're not yet into what the cloud looks like today, no, especially public cloud.
1: No, but we were kind of progressing from that, but that was the kind of stack when I joined as we kind of progressed through it it was really starting to look, and the primary driver f- for the Commonwealth Bank then was to to kind of move to more of a consumption model. They had uh, a lot of their infrastructure, their databases, their data stores, everything. They sp- kept lying around for when they might use it for a, a year-end process or for development kind of pieces. So they were massive acquirers of infrastructure hardware to kind of do that. And um, the CIO at the time, Michael, kind of saw this as an opportunity to really make, optimize the costs and the spend that you put in onto that, that IT, which was pretty exciting back then for any financial institution, let alone any Australian organization to be kind of thinking this way.
0: Right. And even then, financial institutions were heavily regulated. You talked about Sox, Arbanes, Oxley. You also, uh, did, did that help you? Do you feel that the strictness and rigidness of compliance requirements helped your security program, helped your spending? Or do you feel like when you look back and, and, and take like a whole top-down look, you were checkboxing things, you were doing things for checkboxes rather than securing the organization? It's that age-old argument. Can you give me a sense from your experience if you felt like being heavily regulated really, really did help you actually stay secure rather than, you know, checkbox secure?
1: Oh, it's a, it's a great question because it, it, is, it is a bit of a leading argument, right? Uh, like leading conversation. Compliance is a checkbox. You check that box. You can check that box as quickly as you want just to check that box, or you can actually think about what it is and kind of work through it.
0: And let me tell you why I'm raising it now. It's because we're starting to see it now with cyber insurance. Cyber insurance and uh, uh, post ransomware, post ransomware epidemic, cyber insurance has become a lot more expensive. Premiums are harder to get because the checkboxes are more severe. And I'm hearing from CISOs and I'm hearing from defenders. This is a good thing. Like the checkboxes that cybersecurity is demanding is improving security posture, improving hygiene at organizations that need to get insurance. And I want to like seg back to that conversation. When when you remember those times, was it, do you feel that the compliance was a big help? Like this cyber insurance is pushing CISOs today?
1: I, th- I think it was... With all compliance, it, it's a lifting of the, the kind of level that you need to attest to. Um, depending on the regulator, some of them are very focused on, you know, this is what you need to do. And as you know, with cybersecurity, there's always multiple ways to, to kind of take all, tackle a problem. There's multiple controls that you can kind of do it. There's compensating controls. Um, so it allows you to think, compliance forces you to think about why, Why is a regulator wanting this control? Why do they want this box checked? Um, If you don't think about why they want that box checked, then you kind of lose your way and you just become the compliance-driven centric pieces. And for a lot of organization, that's what they need. They need someone to say, you have to do this because you have to do this rather than... Somebody
0: to answer the why or understand the why of it.
1: Yeah. And even in today's kind of realm for, for CISOs, a lot of what they kind of focus on in their strategies and for um, the acquisition of controls, it's driven by compliance, right? The starting point is you need this because X, X demands it or our customers are going to demand it and they want you to comply with this requ- kind of requirement. So there's definitely a role to play. It's the question of whether you stop there and whether you question why you're doing that and is there a better way to do it for your, your organization? or whether it's just that check check checkbox as you kind of called it out. In
0: 2015, you went the CISO route. Like why would anybody want want to be a CISO and what was that? Like it was, you had a three year stint at QBE insurance there. Like, can can you talk me through a little bit about, and I'm asking the question in a weird way because I hear from CISOs a lot and I hear about burnout. I hear about, this is a lose-lose job, CISOs can't win. It's the person to blame. Um, So I'm trying to get from you from in your three year experience there. Did you feel like, did you feel like, uh, help me understand like how you navigated that work?
1: So, um, it's, it's probably an interesting kind of view into my private life as well, because I, l- I love being a CISO. I'm, you know, my career trajectory is to be one I one again, I absolutely kind of think it's where it is. You enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Right. It's, The reason I enjoyed it, and I think this comes through in everything I kind of do, is I like to understand things. I like to improve them. I like to to kind of feel that I've done something to change an organization or the industry for the better and things like that. That's kind of why my current role is an evangelist, because I want to change the industry a little bit to to think about these things. So I absolutely love the CISA role. But they say that there's three, the three most stressful things you can do in, in your life is... Um, get married, not stressful, but fun and happy. But, you know, it's a big change in your life.
0: A little busy, yeah. Yeah.
1: Have children, have a new job. I did all of, all of those within those three years at QB, along with the pressure. So, you know, it it is a stressful job. It is time-consuming. And I don't think it's compatible with having children, right? My wife also works in cybersecurity as well. She's oh, I see. quite high up. And, you know, Wanna cry happened in that time. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. So I was dealing with wanna. Tell cry. me a
0: fun story.
1: You know, having at swimming lessons with my son. <laughs> you know, the parent of me and my phone's going off the hook at the side of the pool while I'm in the pool teaching my you know three year old three three month old.
0: Did you have family. assets caught up in that incident?
1: Uh, we were pretty pretty lucky, but it was. You know, a fire event, drill, obviously. A you know. fire drill. You have to make sure you have to, to kind of work through that. And we were a global organization, right? So this is not just a uh, nine nine to five in Australia, it's a 24 by seven with operations in the UK, in the US, etc. So it's it's really then your partner who you have a child with is also dragged into that. Right, 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 right. So we high impact, yeah. So I think we made the decision as, as a family to, to kind of, you know, start to, to kind of move things around to, to maximize our earning potential and our work-life balance, et cetera. So I took a step back, I decided we were going we to move to the U.S. My wife got a job offer out here. So.
0: But it's still, you still view it as your dream job. Yeah. Uh, well, let me ask a couple of CISO related questions then, because it's um, um, uh, a question I ask all CISOs, we are living in an assumed breach world. Is that a healthy philosophy for a CISO to have the idea that incidents or breach or whatever you call it is happening, will happen, will continue to happen. There is no real defense. We must, we should live in this EDR world of logging everything and being in a state of preparation for response. Help me understand your philosophy.
1: i probably take more of a risk management philosophy. Given my, my background, and I focus on yeah, a breach is going to recall, an incident is going to call. Risks happen, right? You can't, you can't, uh, you know, say we're going to eliminate all risk, and that's a, a fundamental thing. But what you can do is you can reduce the frequency of the of those events occurring, mm-hmm. and you can reduce the impact of them occurring. But you have to to kind of focus on what you're trying to protect, what event that you you're trying to happen. So, I don't think it's a matter of just saying, are oh, we giving up on prevention? It's what are we going to do that is the most impactful in reducing the frequency? And what are we going to do to reduce the, like, the impact of something when it goes boom? Right, so that left and right of boom, I'm a big proponent of that and kind of that, uh, doing that assessment and kind of working through that.
0: Uh, you, the CISO today is a lot different from what the CISO looked like 10 years ago, a lot different than what it looked like five years ago. And I would argue from year to year, it's dramatically getting a lot more uh, a lot more involved. I feel like the CISO is a lot more. Uh, he is uh, a business decision maker in in a very very significant way, and that's getting more and more. We're starting to see security becoming a business enabler. Security has to have a seat at the table. A lot of people are using CISOs as their marketing front person. Look, we're serious about CIS, uh, uh, security. Uh, in 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 this world in this cloud native world public or private cloud data everywhere how does a ciso sleep well at night like what parts of your program do you want to be like humming along nicely where you feel like you're managing risk in a realistic way help me understand how you how you view setting up a security program to make sure these specific things are in in order first
1: it's for me it always starts with governance right you there as an officer of the organization, but that means that you're entitled to make decisions, but you need to make that for considering the whole organization. You're not there to make the best decision for security. You're there to make the best security decision for your organization. And that requires getting multiple inputs, actually putting these in decisions and weighing up the pros and cons. So with everything I kind of say, you know, you need to, to make that those decisions that the security decisions that you're making defensible. And that means governance involving the right people in your organization. It doesn't mean that you're abstaining abstaining from those decisions. You're still making those decisions. You're just making sure that they're defensible. Like, did you get the viewpoint of the CEO? Did you actually cost it And, and kind of say, this is going to cost us X and this is what the output of that is. You can't do any of that without governance in place.
0: Are those conversations getting easier with your CEOs, with your management team, with your board of directors, Uh, uh, like proper and uh, uh, adequate investment and sponsorship of security programs? Do you feel like in your world and in your circle, it's getting better?
1: Uh, I would love to say yes, but I don't think so. I think it's the most effective thing that I've seen everywhere is benchmarking, Um, you know, Going to your board and saying, "Well, everyone else is spending on this; we should too," and they go, "Oh, I don't want to be the one that doesn't spend on it." Or compliance. Going back to that first question, we need to do this because the regulation says we need to do.
0: It. Right, but spending is growing, and I, I at least based on everything we're seeing, um, uh, it looks like security spending is growing. Which segues into like data security and your data security business. Uh, you are at Symmetry Systems, uh, have already built and deployed a data security posture management prod- product. A lot of DSPM, data security posture management vendors out there. Uh, I want to seg into I, I got a couple of questions for you. Uh, if you could just kind of put on your Gartner hat. Uh, your ex-Gartner hat. We haven't gone into your world there yet, but you spent a couple of years at Gartner, kind of looking around the industry and helping vendors and helping CISOs understand the ecosystem. What is DSPM? Let's start right there. Like, and how does it dif- How is it different from, say, DLP or any of the other aspects of cloud data security? Yeah, it's
1: it's probably worth starting with security posture management, and then you know, if you look at Sunil's use cyber security, um, cyber defense, cyber defense, defense matrix, matrix. Yeah. Um, you know. Security posture management across all those layers is basically identifying what controls that you have, what your attack surface is and what your blast radius is if you don't have that control. And that's the way I like to think of it. So data security is really focused on that data layer across um, that that matrix. What I I think when Gartner came up with this term, it is did originate in Gartner. So it's kind of going back to my days. I wasn't involved, but uh, I was watching from the sidelines as you know, this kind of emergence of security posture for cloud, security posture for data uh, kind of uh, originated and Symmetry was driving a lot of that, right? They were the first um, that were kind of named as a DSPM in the cool vendors um, in April last year. And that I think triggered this interest in it. But in terms of what data security posture management, it's really providing insights into how at risk your data is. Where, what is it? Where is your data? What data do you have? Um, who has access to it, right? The first control that you always wrap around control uh, around data is your identity and access management. But then you also have all those compliance requirements. Is it encrypted at rest? Is it encrypted in transit, et cetera? So you kind of have to also know what people are doing with that data to, to really protect it. So it, And
0: DSPM answers all those problems for uh, for a customer?
1: It provides the insights to answer it, right? So you're never gonna be able to tell exactly what data in a database is from an external perspective, but you can discover it, you can classify and then identify it if they're classifiable pieces. But then it also pulls in that information about what are the permissions, who has access to it, and then what are they doing it? So kind of it's the combination of database activity monitoring, DLP, CIEM, the cloud, infrastructure and entitlement management into um, a single platform. And being able to do that at scale across multiple clouds, multiple data stores is, is kind of what excited me in, in kind of joining them for the first time. I was like, this, this has opportunities to really change the way that we approach cybersecurity generally.
0: It's fascinating to me because this kind of level of visibility and granular visibility into identities and, and data flowing through data stores and so on popped into my head when I read the Mudge papers, the Twitter whistleblowing papers about just how developers had access to production stuff and they didn't know who had visibility into where. Is this the kind of uh, tool slash product that's meant to help address some of those issues that we read about in the Twitter papers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's and it's not just specific to a tech company. It's every organization, right um, there. If you ask anyone, do you know where data is the the best answer that they can come up with is. You know, we we kind of took our privacy team and we did a data flow exercise manually or through a system that said, well, we think this data passes that, but they don't actually look at the operations of what's been read, what's been deleted, what's actually happening to the data itself. It's all you know, kind of the old GRC kind of pieces. They're putting blocks together and, and assuming that's right because that's their mental understanding of what actually happened. You know, I use the mental model of the map is not the territory, Right? You, can draw right, a map right. of, you can draw a map of what data happens within your environment. But when you get down to the, the granular detail of what's happening, you kind of find all kinds of interesting things. You know, Third parties that have read access to your data where they should just be reading logs. Yeah.
0: So, ex-employees, ex-employees gone and uh, identities and data and, and permissions still sitting around. Now, let me ask a stupid question. Why shouldn't I be getting this from my cloud provider? Or am I already? And, and, and is, uh, help me understand. I, I know this is becoming a recurring thing on my podcast is if I'm a CISO or, or I'm an IT, I'm head of IT and I bought and deployed a, a, a public cloud service, why do I need to go pay 10 extra vendors to secure it for me? Should I be expecting that from my vendor?
1: Oh, it's, it's a fascinating question. I, the simple answer is they don't have it yet. The long-term answer, are they gonna have it? That I think, you know, my main philosophy is they would be shooting themselves in the foot commercially. They make money out of vendors, they have the marketplaces, they have all this kind of stuff. So it's it's always in their best interests
0: To have more connection points, more APIs, more features, more everything. But the problem is that that that, that expands and creates a tax surface at scale that's impossible to defend. Now we have to look with the third parties, right? And And I'm trying to get to the juxtaposition of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent, venture capital dollars, investment dollars, people time, procedure time, into a bunch of cloud security vendors. When you should be expecting a baseline of security from... From the big tech vendors, and i I know the cyber, the u s government's national cybersecurity strategy came out yesterday talking about liability issues and you know putting the burden back on some of these vendors. Do you expect things to change there a little bit? I absolutely
1: hope so. Will it change within our lifetime our, yeah. you know a lot of that liability means it's going to end up in litigation um, yeah. Is it going to have long-term effects? Well, it depends on the results of that litigation. Will that absolutely have a thing? Yeah. Is Are people going to be scared about it enough about that potential litigation to start changing right now? Absolutely, right? How much are they going to change? Well, a lot of people are just going to sit on their hands and wait for the first big tech vendor to be taken to to court because they will be, right? As soon as any of that liability comes in and they have an instant that they can point to that. But is it going to happen within my lifetime, your lifetime? We're, we're pretty old. So. Who knows?
0: And it's government too. They do like they do a lot of talking, a lot, a lot of talking, and very, very little doing. Uh, just coming back to posture management uh, in general, uh, one of the things that popped out at me. I get a lot of briefings from vendors uh, in my life as a journalist writing about startups, and every briefing starts with a dashboard, and I have dashboard fatigue, and I don't even rely on it, right? you're in a world where you're also surfacing data on a dashboard how are cisos or how are defenders managing this where every product is a dashboard and you know they're trying to orchestrate it and trying to bring it into one thing is that is that a real burden i'm
1: going to go back to my gartner days and every organization that was using a vendor and you know including the risk management things the way they would use that, and the CISOs would use that data from those dashboards, is they would export it to Excel and put it into a format they wanted to use. So, um,
0: is- the dashboard is a nice uh, coat of paint, but in reality, they're they're monitoring that data and using that data. In old school for, for, for reporting, right.
1: Ways. Is there value in dashboards in driving? And and. I suppose this comes down to looking at the role of the person using your product, right? Are they a CISO coming in there to get insights so that they can report up? Because that's what CISOs do, right? They, they kind of either come in to, to kind of get a status report, figure out what needs to be fixed and broken to kind of plan their strategies, or they're there to, to kind of prove that there's nothing to worry about. So that current status, things to do, or you know, who, who do they need to kick to get something done? That's what they come into there. So that, that dashboard is pretty simple for a CISO. These are the things you need to fix. This is the current status. This is who you need to talk to. Everyone just throws so much stuff in there. But if you look at the other personas, they need to know what do I need to fix? That's, that's their kind of role. So I think there is a role for dashboards in improving the user experience of personas using your product to make it.
0: But this fatigue is never going away. I mean, that's just the reality. Uh, Does Symmetry and DataGuard help me get SOC 2 compliance help me? Like, how do you help a CISO manage his compliance Uh, needs?
1: My kind of philosophy is in every compliance standard, you know, the ones with the biggest teeth are data related, right? Privacy, big fines, big penalties, you know, potential litigation from that, you know, if you don't do it within, it's all data related. Uh, PCI, another one, that's where the fines and penalties come from. If you look at the other compliance standards, they're very much trying to prove that you have security under control. And there's a subset of those that are focused on data. But but that's my kind of way of looking at the, the compliance world, is the ones with the big scary repercussions, if you don't comply, they all focus on data. So absolutely, DataGuard helps there in terms of getting control on that, getting visibility into what your data is, identifying where that sensitive regulated data is, kind of streamlining that, doing it at a touch of a button to to figure out what that landscape is. And then we also help with SOC 2, SOCs and and all those for the specific data controls. We're not gonna solve everything.
0: No, it's really interesting that the more data gets shared during breaches and incidents, the more your eyes open to Uh, data sprawl, identity sprawl, and some of these issues. Look at LastPass. LastPass is, yeah, I, I, you can make the argument that they're probably going to be hacked out of business. Uh, you know, a developer's home machine was compromised as part of that thing, as part of that whole pivot thing. You look at Okta. If some of these the Twitter papers I mentioned, Okta was compromised. Uh, uh, gosh, we can go through the list of tech vendors who are mature with a CISO and a, you know, security program that is mature and, and, and looked up to, and they're all getting popped and breached. It's like, where do you see cloud data security go? Are we heading in the right direction where you get a sense that things are getting a little better? Or are we just resigned to be crawling along, dealing with these breaches, just getting worse and worse year after year? Like it just feels helpless to me as an outside observer.
1: I'm a bit more positive. <laughs> um, the, the reason why I'm a bit more positive is, is that I think we're at this inflection point with the cloud where we're actually able to get telemetry at scale through the APIs that, that are being opened up and through the, the logs that we can actually understand is what is happening with our our data within those environments. And that provides an opportunity to to kind of really start to look at rather than trying to figure out what the attacker is doing and how they might get in as the starting point, let's figure out what our data is, how people can access that. That, that kind of seems like the better starting point for someone protecting their, org- their data, their organization. Now, absolutely, some organizations aren't going to be focused on their data. They're going to be more application-centric. But for most organization or manufacturing-centric, they're still going to have data lying about on how they sell the products how they work through that ip so i think a lot of it comes down to for us is we've got this great opportunity to provide visibility and telemetry into what's happening with your data which in most kill chains is the last part
0: right, of, right. of anything so it's you data. kind of flip it all around and start with the data and then just see everything that happens from there
1: yeah and then you can prioritize which of those other controls that you you need, like which which applications are accessing your data, which which users like this uh, um, LastPass user, where were they coming from? What machine were they accessing? What did they kind of work through? And then start to look at those behaviors in, in a little bit more. That so that's that's kind of what's driving a lot of our positioning of saying data centric security strategies are going to be hopefully tackling this problem? Maybe we ta- chat in a couple of uh, years and we kind of see if it you, you feel a little bit better about the future of, of security as a result.
0: I don't know. I'm, I've been writing about security for 21 years and I was looking back at a few articles I wrote in the last, let's say this year, in 2023. I could just change the date and change the name of the company and nothing would change. And it feels like, I don't know, I talk to a lot of CISOs as well and they feel like, yeah, it's just a risk management thing. I can just manage as much risk as I can, and I can understand that I can absorb some of the risk over there. And there's no such thing as like security. Like the idea of securing an organization is just kind of like a, a, a weird mindset. And, and, and in the real world, and, and let me let me let me close the question. And let me close the thought and the question this way. You're an evangelist there. Your job is to basically help CISOs, help defenders understand how data, where data is, how it's flowing through, what are all these risks and so on. Do you feel your message is catching on? or are, are CISOs, or defenders, or developers, or everyone in that ecosystem getting a sense for the severity of the, the, the issue at hand? And, and and do we feel like we have shoulders to the wheel, everyone bracing in the right direction, or are we just kind of like circling the wagons here? I don't know. Uh I think part of my role
1: is exactly that. I I don't think we've got that inflection point across the industry where they're working through that. There is a lot of, as you've seen with the number of vendors, there's a lot of belief. In this category, yeah. I mean, it's... In this category, right? Um, What has to happen before we can kind of say, I I don't need to evangelize data security posthumant or data centric security is people need to start demonstrating that it has had actionable you know, improvements. Right. The case studies need to come through. They need to, to kind of, and it's not just showing that we've identified one, you know, we had a threat researcher write something and we found this issue. It's actually making changes to the whole environment and the industry as a whole. Right. I, are we at that point? No. I mean, it's, it's still, there's big investment happening in it. We need to actually get the customers who believe in this to actually, demonstrate that it works for their environment. That's that's kind of the next step in that evolution for me.
0: Thank you very much, Claude. Come back next year. Let's not wait for two years. Come back soon uh, uh, as things progress. And let's talk a little bit about how, how this cloud security world is evolving. I'm fascinated by it. I'm a little bit of a curmudgeon and a pessimist. So every time I get you to come on and kind of, uh, uh, you know, give me a brighter look at the situation, I'm happy about it.
1: I'll come prepared next time with some case studies of, you know, what improvements we've seen in organizations. But Ryan, this has been a pleasure. It's always, I'm a big fan of the podcast and I love talking to you, mate. So thanks for having me.
0: Appreciate it. Thank you, Claude. Best of luck with everything. Thanks,
1: mate.